0: All right, so we're continuing our summer of action and diving deeper, but as we're recording this, we're also coming off a long weekend and a summer that's been filled with more friends and family and conversation and ability to actually be together in a way that we haven't been able to be since, I don't know, March of 2020. So Sarah, I have a question for you. What has that been like for you?
1: I don't know if my true personality comes across in this show, but Sometimes I'm known to be a little dramatic. What? (laughs) And I don't think it's dramatic to say that I feel like I've returned to life. I love it. Like, you know, we've done stuff. It was almost more visible in my children's eyes. They got back from time when they got to socialize and I hadn't seen them and I saw them and they returned to me with this like life behind their eyes again. This glow, this sincere smile, this freedom. And I think freedom is a really loaded word in this country because I'm not entirely sure we are all on the same. In fact, I know we're not on the same page with what that word actually means to humanity as a society, especially around the globe. But yeah, I feel like I'm alive again after a long period of darkness that I didn't even know I was going through until I emerged.
0: So yay, we're here. How about you, me, Sasha? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of the same. Like I would say although my husband disagrees with this, that I am an introvert or sometimes an extroverted introvert. You are such an introvert, let's be honest. Why does he not think this? I don't know. He's always like, but you always want to talk to people. I'm like, I think that's a comparison like scale here.
1: Relative to him.
0: (laughs) Relative, right? (laughs) But I didn't realize how much I really missed people. You know, like having the ability to just have that conversation and that connection that you know, I thought it was good in small doses. Right. And I didn't really, you know, need it as an overarching component of my life. And then I also saw to my kids, right. In my, I was picking up my kids from camp yesterday. And this is like the first indoor masked camp because we're in California. So the camps are still requiring masks for indoors activities. And, you know, this woman comes up to me and she's like, this is the first activity that we have been able to do since March of 2020. She's like, my kids weren't in school. Like, and this is the first thing we've been able to do in 18 months. And she was like, and I can see it. In their faces, how happy they are. And I mean, literally only the eyes, right? And I look at her kids and I'm like, yeah, you can tell that these kids are happy. And I look at my kids just like a hot mess running around this museum thing. And (laughs) I was like, yeah, they're kids again, right? And I think we lost some of that. So for me, you know, this togetherness now makes me think of, you know, not only friendship and community, but also how much we learn from each other, right? Just by being around each other. And not only, through the ways in which we're similar, which is, I think, how we often sort of create and cultivate friendships, right? Through that commonalities that we share, but also in the ways that we're different. And I think that this can be particularly true when we think about cross-racial friendships and how our communities change as a result.
1: Totally. And I want to interject because by the time people are listening to this episode, I will almost be on my way to California to see you. So if you are on our Instagram, I think there's going to be some live photos. We're actually going to see each other for the first time in a year and a half.
0: You think there's going to be some live photos? I feel like you're going to have your camera <laughs> out like constantly, like these are all the photos that I need you to take right now because I'm standing right here. So you have no excuse that you don't have a photographer. Yeah,
1: if you are all our Instagram feed, I control that. And you need to tell me, Sasha, she needs to give me more selfies and more videos of herself.
0: I'm happy being the woman behind the woman who runs
1: the Instagram feed. <laughs> so, but I am so excited to be seeing you in just such a short while. But in the meanwhile, you get to listen to this amazing conversation because we are so excited to bring to you the opt-in women, Kelly and Aurora here with us to discuss community, cross-racial friendships, and so much more. I mean, I think the best part of this conversation was not only how both Kelly and Aurora shine, right? They are such cool people. I mean, you want to talk to them for hours, but they're really real. They're real, not only about the good parts of their friendship and their identities, but also the tough parts, because they are in a cross-racial friendship. And because we love them so much, we actually split our conversation with them into two parts. Part one this week focuses on what we just talked about. And part two, well, you'll have to stay tuned. But it does center around what we can all do in terms of social activism and moving the needle. And spoiler alert, it all starts from within. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Okay, I am so freaking excited to be here because it just feels like we're having a girl chat basically, but with a lot more serious context. I discovered you through your Instagram feed and your beautiful work that you do. Can you two please introduce yourselves for our audience?
2: Yes. So we are the opt-in. And I am Aurora, Aurora Archer, and I am the co-founder and co-host of The Optin with my partner.
3: Hi, I'm Kelly, Crochi Sorg, and the other half of The Optin, and I always kind of lead with I'm white because we talk about uncomfortable conversations having to do with race, without shame and with accountability.
2: And my pronouns are she and a gap, and I am Black and Afro-Latina. I'm an Afro-Latina. Yeah.
0: And I go by she and her. Thank you so
2: much for having us.
3: We're
0: delighted to be here. So I was listening to your season three recap because Mm -hmm. I love a good recap, first of all, but it was really, I thought it was so powerful because it leaned so hard into community, you know, and that's something that Sarah and I have spent a lot of time talking about, writing about, because for Sarah and me being biracial, right? Being Asian, Japanese and white in the wake of the escalation of the anti-Asian hate crimes, right? Both of us, I think have really reached back into those familiar communities that for us are really largely based on the heritage and the communities that we grew up in not only for support and strength, but also for this real feeling of togetherness, right? That we have each other's backs, you know, and these aren't the membership or the paid communities that I heard you guys sort of, you know, contrast, right? On that recap, those are the ones that we sort of intrinsically belong to, but that's not always the case, right? And so I think for our listeners, can you talk about how you've thought about community, especially in times like this and what community looks like for you two?
2: I'll start. I don't know. That I have ever operated without a sense of community. When we did that season, you know, Kelly and I spent a lot of time unpacking our own stories, our own beliefs, our own experiences around community. And for me, I had the privilege of actually of having two communities. I belong to my mother's heritage, cultural Mexican community. And then by default, because she was an immigrant, there was an overlay of an immigrant community that existed there. And then my father is African-American. And so that was also the community. And so I don't ever not recall in my life, not feeling a part of being, feeling a part of or belonging to something bigger than me and something outside of myself and my nucleus family. And that spilled over not only in the way that I spent time as a child, also how I contributed and was supported and loved and guided, at times reprimanded, checked. So for me, that sense of community has always been embodied in the way I experienced my life. and. Now, when I think about community, for me, the circle of what community means has just continued to expand and become bigger. And I think the events of the last year has only made that wider, Mm. right? We had to have this awful, catastrophic global event impact us so that we could see that we are all part of the same human community
3: since we did that season and that episode, I feel like a lot has changed and evolved in my own life and in what community means to me, because I do look back and growing up communities were probably not that they were hierarchical. They were more superficial. I mean, even the church, if you paid and you went, then you were a good part of the community. And if you didn't, then you weren't. So more recently when I was looking to make change in a way in the form of recovery from alcohol, I joined a community and was like blown away at how powerful it really was and how of service it naturally was. And I was like, you know, it's really gets a bad rap. Like it sucks. It's anonymous. It's the only time I've seen white people be so (laughs) (laughs) self-reflective. And it's so necessary for transformational change, which is exactly what we need. Mm -hmm. And being a white person conditioned in white culture. And I, you know, my parents and family, they did the very best they could with the tools they had. And uh, for all intents and purposes, they did really, really well. Like I grew up really privileged, like uber privileged. And to be honest, our community got smaller as we got richer we had bigger houses with bigger land, with bigger fences, with louder alarms. And everything was for me and my own. And that mentality was sort of passed down in a legacy kind of way. And now has, in the last few years, really been looked at and examined to say like, how is that serving us? And luckily I come from two parents that are ever-changing and learning. And so, whereas you know, prior behavior was not, you know, ideal, like we're okay with looking at that. And they're examining and doing a lot of self-awareness in their own way and at their own speed. But now it's like, for me, community is just, I'm like, I can't believe I so poo-pooed it. It just goes to show how, I don't know, traumatized I was by the superficial communities that I was in, I guess. And that how just like, you know, I want everybody on the dance floor now, you know, in, in,
2: in the communities that I'm in. Because <laughs> you're a great community participant and I member, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Like, don't you feel like, yeah, I think that there's something about community. That's not about just what you take from community, but what you bring and what you give to community. And I think one of the key things about community is that it's mutualistic. Yeah. Right. We're here to be of service to each other and whatever that might mean, you know, for us growing up, that may mean that, you know, someone's family needed shelter for a weekend or a day or even a week or maybe sometimes a month. It may mean that, you know what, someone needed support in making rent. It may have meant that, you know, someone just lost their job and they need to find, you know, we need to rally the community and figure out how we help that family and that person find a sense of financial support for themselves and their family. It meant a multitude of things. Sometimes it just meant a hug, a safe place to go to be seen, supported and loved.
1: You hit it on the head there, Aurora. It's that sense of being seen and mattering. And how many times on our show have I talked about how it is important for human beings fundamentally, psychologically to feel like we matter. And not just that other people see us, but that we have value to contribute to other people as well. And that to me is that community that you're talking about. And as you both were discussing your differences and understanding of community growing up, I had a couple of thoughts, but I found First of all, a thing that I've talked about in the past is this idea of like garage door syndrome, where people in suburbs get their cars like they drive, they open their garage door from the car, they drive their car. in, And before even they get out of the car, you close the garage behind you so you don't have to talk to neighbors. Right. Like it's this isolation and hidden nature. And for some reason that was held up as this American ideal of like we want our single family homes and our cars and the suburbs But the reality is the rest of the world tends to live in apartment buildings, in like communities, in like really shared spaces. And, you know, the United States is ranking pretty poorly on its happiness scales overall when it comes to the measurements. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder how much, when, you know, Kelly, as you were saying, like that disconnect is the homes get bigger. I mean, that was hilarious the way you described it, but it's, I can visualize it, right? Does that really distance us from this sense of mattering. And we have to then create these artificial constructs of mattering as opposed to then like naturally helping the people get their needs met. Right. Yeah. And then the other thought I had was like, I feel like when I matter to a Japanese community, it's because I'm inherently Japanese or, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Aurora, like the immigrant community or the black community, like, does the white community have each other's back? Like, do you matter? I don't know if it does because it's been held as this dominant for so long that it doesn't seem to feel like you look out for each other in the same way.
3: So, yeah, I love that garage door analogy, Sarah. That's so helpful. I actually think about my own neighborhood. I mean, I live in a suburb of Philadelphia. And about five years ago, I put a front porch on my house. And I'm a huge front porch fan because I'm on the front porch. And and I've lived in my neighborhood for now 16 years. And when I first moved in, nobody walked. Nobody had front porches. You didn't see anybody. And five years ago, we put the front porch on and, you know, we start waving, 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 and eventually people start waving in the cars. Right. (laughs) And then it was like COVID hit and we were like, all these people live in our neighborhood. (laughs) Like the amount of people walking around this three street (laughs) thing was like, I was stunned at how many people there were. And we did this Halloween thing where we put tables out you know in the driveway so that it was safe or whatever and we had to give out flyers and it was like 125 houses i'm like i never would have thought there was 125 houses in this like three street area and it used to be all white mostly old you know then became empty nesters then they moved out and now it i actually have like three black families in my neighborhood We're walking all the time. There's a couple Latino families. Like we have a smattering for a white suburb of Philadelphia to have a little bit more color coming in. And like the front porch thing is still so holds true because I feel like you need to see each other. If you don't see each other, then you're like making assumptions as to what everyone's doing. Or I don't know, we have this thing where like, we expect the worst and trust the least. I don't know. My parents both come from like Irish and Italian sort of working middle-class families. And it was like, my grandparents are 92 years old. The sky is still falling. They're old as dirt. I mean, they should be just like, you know, living super happy and it's, the sky is still falling for them. So there's a lot of pathology (laughs) shifting of, you know, that lack mentality and being in connection with people who don't have the same background helped me see abundance in that. So you did ask an original question that I probably didn't just answer though. Having each other's backs. That's a tough one. When I think of white women and growing up and traditionally for me, there was, and I still see it in younger people today. I will not mention where <laughs> there's still that male gaze of competition You know, you see the white supremacy cultural characteristics start to flare their ugly head of like what I said, competition, individualism, binary thinking, mistrust, you know, niceness to each other's faces, and then talking behind each other's backs. And just how early that can start and how early it can kind of be pointed out to say like, hey, that's a thing that doesn't serve anybody. We're not going to do that. And I had to learn that probably later in life and too late, but nonetheless, and I think cross-racial friendship has extremely helped me with that because it brings awareness to the way I'm thinking and it's not the way that she is thinking. In fact, she's thinking in defense of what she knows I'm thinking and I'm a- unaware of how I'm thinking. So there's you know, that awareness of how our white culture is a culture, even though we think we are these individual people and how acceptable socially it is. A lot of the really harmful behavior
2: that we then have to protect against and defend.
1: Totally makes sense. Yes.
2: Well, I love the way that you talked about Sarah, because I think physical separation, and I think this is part of what we are experiencing with COVID. I think physical separation is a marker to emotional, psychological separation. And for me, the contrast was, you know, growing up in the barrios of San Antonio, Texas, my parents were both domestic. So we lived, you know, it was a very humble beginning and a very humble environment. And we were all together. Like, that's what I always, like, we travel, like we roll together, right? And because my parents were domestics, I got to see how the other half lived. So we would get on the public transportation and go into the wealthy white suburbs of San Antonio, where the lawns were these, exactly what Kelly said, long, sprawling yards that took you forever to get to the front door, much less the back of the garage to pick up your cleaning supplies, et cetera. And it always was striking to me of how separated everybody was, how quiet everything was because you were inside all, the house too inside the house right and it was so interesting because when you got inside the house you were supposed to even be more quiet and it was like what and i you know was used to an environment where like we were all joking and there was always music blaring in the background and you know somebody yelling at somebody's kid and like go pick up this and go pick up that and i also had the opportunity that i would spend my summers in mexico because my parents' domestics couldn't afford summer after school childcare so my sister and i would get shipped to mexico and so my grandmother's house was the hub like it was like grand central station every day from the moment that rooster cockadoodled in the morning to the time that you know we went to bed Somebody was always coming in and out of the house, whether it was for breakfast, whether it was to drop off to have a cup of coffee, whether it was to say hello, and whether it was a family member, whether it was the neighbor, it was just like, and so this thing that when you watch white people, that it's like the doorbell rings and they're like, who's at our door? For me, it was, you know, my grandmother's home. It was culturally from my parents and immigrants. But like, you know, somebody was down and out in the community. It's like, we all rallied. Didn't matter if you were black, white, or yellow. It didn't matter because there was just a greater sense of like, I got you. Like, you know, one of the things my father always instilled in this, you are your brother and sister's keeper. There was no, okay, only if they're Mexican or only if they're black or only if they're like, no, no, you are your brother and sister's keeper, Period.
0: Then that sort of leads me to the discussion of cross-racial friendships, right? Because you mentioned that. And I got this question this week, actually, in the middle of a webinar, which was a white woman asking, well, how do I really make those cross-racial friendships? And so it led us to talk about sometimes there's an intentionality behind this, right? Like if you're in a largely white area, right? It may not be, you know, your next door neighbor, right? It may not be, you know, you might not be going... To all those paid membership things that you go to, your paid fitness club, right? Your paid whatever, that might not be the way that you're going to meet people. But Sarah and I, our conversations and our podcast came out of, right? Our cross racial not only we have sort of that same racial makeup, but my husband's black. I have two sons who, you know, the world sees as black boys. And so talking about those fears and realizing what wasn't being said in a lot of circles was one of the ways that we both got deeper into this work. So I would love, you know, to hear, because I think that was, Kelly, when I heard you talk about, you know, wanting to be a better friend or not a shitty friend, right, to Aurora. (laughs) Very much so. I think like the impetus for a lot of us is that humanity led impulse, right? Like really, because they matter, right? Because these people matter in our lives. We want to be better and do better, but how can more of us tap into that? I know it's a big question. Oh man, that's such the money question.
3: So I have a couple teachers that I love dearly. One of them is Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. And she will say it's by design that we don't mix. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, to your point, Sasha, it's intentional that we, and I do have a lot of white women that will ask me a similar question. And for me, it took even in being friends with Aurora for 10 years, which was really on an acquaintance level, which I really didn't realize how surface level a lot of my friendships were, or they were just so long in my life that they were just enmeshed, I guess. And so when I realized what I was coming to the table, not understanding in our relationship with Aurora, that I was like, oh gosh, I have a lot of catch up to do. So I would say there's a lot of self-awareness and racial literacy that I had to catch up on. In that it wasn't about learning about Aurora's experience per se, or the black experience in the United States, which is so important. It's also learning as to my whiteness and what that means when I come into a room, what that means the way I think in a hierarchical way, what it means when, you know, the power dynamics in my relationships and my parents and my husband, like all the ways in which inequality bleeds through my life. It's not just like, oh, she's black and I'm white. And, you know, there's differences there. It's like, there's a lot of my whiteness I had to understand first to even be quite frankly, like valid of being a friend <laughs> to somebody not white, so to speak. And even then it's our relationship, I would say hasn't gotten easier. It's gotten harder. In the most beautiful, deep way, but I'm able to hold space for Aurora's honesty. And she can share a lot more with me now about my own self and about our relationship or about herself that I wouldn't have even understood, or I would have taken offense to, or I would have been hurt, just hurt, just because I was so incapable of seeing myself there's one more thing and then I can kind of tie them all together. And that is exactly to your point is putting yourself in situations that aren't all white. You know, it's really easy to be in a homogenous spot. It's just the way that we're conditioned and it's the way it's been set up, frankly, it's by design. So, you know, making sure that my kids are, you know, the people, all the things that I pay for in my life, whatever that is, that it's going to black indigenous people of color, that when my kids are having friendships like, oh, bring that kid in, bring this kid in, you know, like, they're in a, I changed schools. I left the church. I left the country club. I mean, I really just like, was like, no, no. Okay. Yep. That's white supremacy. So that is a long way of saying that I had to do work on myself. It has to be intentional that you have to break out of your white bubble and that, gosh, I can't believe what I was missing out on. I cannot believe it. And again, it's like, I just want everybody on the dance floor. Like this is the greatest thing.
1: Tell me a little bit more about what it is that you were missing out on, because I think when people hear things like this, there are ways to be like, A, why would I sacrifice my status, my previous way of living, right? Because I was comfortable. Mm. And then I think there are people who would also say, but why do all of this? Why do I have to? Mm. And then what's the difference between then doing it in a way that pays lip service to some of it versus like, Because I can tell, right? You can tell. I don't know how to quantify that, (laughs) like the difference between lip service and those who actually do it because they deeply give a shit, right? And they actually care about Mm -hmm. people in their lives. So how do you explain that? Because I just, I feel like there's just a little more I want to understand. Okay. So
3: first of all, the word humanity, I actually really didn't, it would go like this over my head, like three years ago, like humanity was like a cool idea, maybe on a t-shirt. It was, I really didn't understand
2: It was one of my, it was uh, humanity is one was my hashtag. And I remember several years ago, (laughs) like, I know you use that hashtag all the time, but I have no idea what you're talking
3: about. I mean, that's how dense. So to answer your question, Sarah, when you say comfort, I think I thought comfort was a, a certain thing. I thought comfort was easy. I thought comfort was money. I thought comfort was status, things, places, enjoyment. Just, I really thought I was put on this earth just to make sure my family was comfortable. Like, cause I came into comfort and then I just thought I was supposed to continue that. And yet with that comfort came great dis-ease. I was not comfortable at all with myself. I was not in integrity at all with myself. I wasn't around a lot of black and brown people because I was not comfortable with myself. I did not know who I was. I may have been seeking and thinking that I knew I was somebody, but it was totally incomplete if I didn't know the most influential social identity that was guiding all of my life. Mm -hmm. So in knowing that now, or at least working towards knowing that, I can lay my head down at night. Like, I don't want to live any other way. I was out of integrity. I was not behind the scenes the way I was in front. It just didn't match. So now it's like, and I had to get rid of alcohol as part of that because I was like, that's numbing me while I'm trying to wake up and it's not working. So I think we think we're comfortable. And believe me, I mean, you know, what does Chris Rock say? Like, well, he doesn't do everything, but it gives you a lot of choices, you know? (laughs) And it can prolong our sleep state for a very long time unless we opt in to look at it differently. And so that's where I'm like, I see people and I see great discomfort. I see it in their weight loss, they're working out, they're getting degrees, they're overworking, they're not sharing with their husband how they really feel, they're you know just having more kids. There's so many ways that I see people not comfortable in comfort.
1: I really appreciate that because it reminds me of what uh, Sonia Renee Taylor and this idea of I am inherently enough and like, just get rid of the isms. Like every time you're looking at yourself, the lines like, oh, you don't like your cheek lines, like stop it. That's ageism, you know, fatism, and all of that ties into us needing to deeply accept and appreciate ourselves so that we can then shine that light outwards too and love one another through our humanity. So thank you for explaining that. I really, really, really appreciate that.
3: Bingo. Can I build on that for one second? Like white supremacy culture is designed for us to hate ourselves because if we hate ourselves, then we can be controlled. So if we love deeply, deeply love ourselves and that pours over to everybody else, we cannot be manipulated, which is, that's what it is. It's a pyramid scheme, right? So yeah, I mean, I may have been
0: comfortable, but I was not self-loving and that is not comfortable. That's so powerful, because I think that those are often conflated, right? And I think that it's so easy, based on everything that's been ingrained in a lot of us, right, to assume that one means the other. And I think the notion of sacrifice or giving something up, right, is hard for people. But I think the question that you were asking, which is so powerful, is what really are you giving up, right? Are you really giving up the comfort? Because were you comfortable in the first place? Like, is that that's not your loss here. Right. So. Yeah. I don't feel a lack. I
3: feel abundant. Like I feel way, like, I just feel like expansive. And I would just add, because, you know, in being in cross-racial friendship with black, indigenous, and people of color, I, in my experience, like for Aurora, I felt like she was just waiting for me to like, she's kind of just looking at, like in a way, like meta way, like looking at me, like, are you done? Like, are you ready to just like, come on this journey? Like what you're so self absorbed with all this like weird shit, you know, like, are you going to like get, and I did, I had to go through like a journey of peaks and valleys of hating myself because of my whiteness, you know, all the things, all the racial identity, you know, to go development, guilt, shame, shame. Blah, grief. Blah, 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 fatigue, grief, you know, all of it. And yet I didn't have to do, go through any of the actual trauma that Aurora's had to go through and, you know, millions of others for hundreds of years so it's like you know a journey of my own calling and I find that a lot of black indigenous people of color are giving us way too much credit like in a lot of ways like they're so I don't know if we thought that they didn't want to be friends with us or you know I don't know what we thought but I'm like the second I open up and I'm human
2: everyone's like really welcoming (laughs) you know what was I doing (laughs) Well, I think it was the projecting. Yeah. Right? It's this projecting. We're used to
3: the clicky bullshit or something. I don't know.
2: And I think because like we see you, it's not like we don't see it. So you were saying earlier that you didn't know how to describe like this notion when you know someone is being performative or when someone has got the real, real, we see it. I don't know what it is. There's a sixth sense across Black, Indigenous, people of color. Like we see it. We see you before you actually walk into the room. And there is, and I say this to my white friends, it's like, we have been watching and seeing you all along. Like we know every aspect of your behavior. We're not shocked. You may be shocked. I know, right? learning <laughs> and that you are coming into it. I mean, I, I'm recalling the moment that Kelly said, like, I think we have to go to therapy together. I had to go to bed.
3: That's what it was. (laughs) I remember I would say, we're like bunnies, you know, like bunnies just like face the wall, like, I can't see you. You know, like, (laughs) you can't see me. I'm just facing the wall, you know? Because when I read White Fragility, I was like, oh God, we all do these things and they all know it. (laughs) Like, and we thought this was the right things to do. Like, there's something
2: really, really wrong here. Like, and so to that point, like, because we see it. And then when we see you genuinely looking within yourself, excavating, asking yourselves those deeper, harder questions, we see that too. And we share and offer grace for that. And we share and we offer love. And I think that that's the part that I find that white people struggle to believe that we would do that. Because I think they struggle in giving that to themselves, let alone to others. Yes. Deep (laughs) breath.
1: Yeah.
3: (laughs) I was going to say, like, you see this in businesses when we're talking about DE and I and getting into an engagement. You can honestly see the fear Mm in white people and white men. And it's like, oh, you think we're going to roll like you roll. No,
2: this is a whole nother game, you know? It it's indeed. a self game. It's all a game, you know, <laughs> like this is a joyful practice,
3: but that's like, we don't know that. No,
1: <laughs> but I like that. Cause that energy, you can see it. Like you said, you know, who is oh, yeah. wired that way. And I think then the more you are that you form these greater communities of people who are like-minded in that way or or like spirited, I guess, for more holistically. Mm -hmm. And then you can share that with people. I do think that there's a huge shift that can happen. You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news, we have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women podcast and Twitter at DWW podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here.